Seamus. Will. Welcome to another episode of Goop Fellows, yeah. everybody. I know today's episode is, is um, actually really incredibly relevant because we're talking with Peggy Orenstein, who just wrote an incredible book called Boys and Sex. Um, but we are just found out that Harvey Weinstein is um, likely to be indicted in two states, in both California and New York. Yeah. And it's uh, this is he obviously was kind of at the very beginning of the, the, the what kicked off the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but what Peggy talks about in her book, which is totally fascinating, is all of the culture, both hookup culture and culture of 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 sex that's being, you know, the, the lack of discussion of sex with with boys and the ramifications that they have as, as they become men. Totally. I mean, this episode is, in my opinion, required listening. Anybody that has a, a son or mm-hmm. a daughter or anybody that just wants to be a better human, in my opinion, because no. it's it, these are conversations that we need to be having. We need to break the stigma and the shame and the... Uh, dysfunctional relationship that we have around mm-hmm. sex and our culture. Um, so and the fact that we don't really talk with boys, I mean, girls definitely have much more, um, there's there's more of kind of a, of a structure for talking with girls, but for boys, it's just kind of left to their own devices and they end up learning about sex through through pornography, which is obviously not the best teacher for, mm-hmm. for sex for kids. Uh, so our guest today is Peggy Orenstein. She's an incredible journalist and best-selling author of books uh, like Girls and Sex. Now she's written Boys and Sex. Cinderella Ate My Daughter and Don't Call Me Princess. Her work has mainly been focused on young women, but her new book focuses on on this groundbreaking research with boys. And uh, and we were super excited to talk to her. Yeah. So let's get to our conversation with Peggy Orenstein. The book is so, like, as a dad, as a man, um, this is so richly needed. Thank, um, you. thank you for putting the time in and the research in. So oh. let's talk about boys and sex. It's let's. fascinating. Let's I mean, go. and this is totally a de- this is like a departure from what you've done historically. Well, it it's I, I think of it as a kind of step to the lateral move. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I guess yeah, not a departure. Yeah. It's like an no, overlap. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, but it's true. I never. I mean, I it was not on my to do list uh-huh. to write about boys. It was hmm. just not something I thought I would do. I have been writing about girls for twenty five years. Uh-huh. Wow, and. I love it. It's been fantastic. And um, after I wrote Girls and Sex, which was the the book I did before this, mm-hmm. everywhere I went, um, parents were saying, "Yeah, do this with boys. <laughs> when are you going to do the boy book? When are you going to yeah. do the boy book?" And I was kind of like, "Oh, I don't know," because I I really didn't know if boys would. They don't really have a reputation for being chatty, mm-hmm. you know. So I thought I might have like whole transcripts of, uh huh. Uh, <laughs> that worried me in the research, right? In yeah. the research yeah. part, yeah. yeah. And but um, and then you know, so I was thinking about that, and then uh, and then Me Too came along, and, and it's sort of like you got to do this, yeah, yeah. And there was like, I mean, it was like an earthquake, right? Mm-hmm. And it obviously created this imperative to reduce sexual violence, but it also created, I think, a real opportunity mm-hmm. to engage boys and young men yeah. in these really important conversations about sex and masculinity mm-hmm. and emotional intimacy in a new and really unprecedented way. So it became a really exciting and urgent project. Yeah. I've heard you say before that when you were doing research for girls and sex, that we, we, girls were not talked to about sex in their family and in culture, but boys are talked to even less about sex. As it turns out. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is surprising. I, I yeah. and you said the only the two things that we're told growing up is respect women. But what what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And don't get a girl pregnant, right? Which is so true. And maybe don't get a disease. 
Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, the respect women thing, that was really interesting because the guys would a lot of times say, because I, I would always lead with, what did your parents tell you about sex? Mm -hmm. And their eyes go, eh, respect women. And one guy said, but you know, that's like telling somebody don't run in over any little old ladies and handing them the car keys. Right. You, know? <laughs> they, yeah. you don't think you're going to yeah. run over a little old lady, but you don't know how to drive. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, something that I thought was was interesting, too, is in your research and talking to these kids, I think it was an 11th grader, and talking about the basis analogy and, you know, sexual activity being bases. And and he said something like, they're, in baseball, they're winners and losers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned, or it was mentioned somewhere, that... In that analogy, the girl isn't even the other team. No, she's, she's the, the field. field. Yeah, she's the field on which the game is played. Yeah, and you're literally playing the field. Yeah, yeah. And, yes, literally. <laughs> and I don't know, when, when he said that, I felt like that was such a profound shift in him mm -hmm. that, that he was going to go forward with a different attitude for having had that revelation, which is part of what it's all about. Actually, there, there's a guy named Al Vernacchio who... Um, teaches sex ed in, in the Philadelphia area who suggests replacing the baseball metaphor with um, pizza. Mm -hmm. Because, like, <laughs> you know, when you go out to pizza, you decide if you want pizza. And pizza, like, you figure out together what right. your toppings are going to be. And um, you would never shove pizza down somebody's throat. That would be really weird, you know. <laughs> or maybe if if you want pepperoni and I want mushrooms, we'd yeah. go halvesies or have pepperoni this time, mushrooms next time. Or, you mm -hmm. know, like if you keep insisting on pepperoni and I keep kosher, I'm going to stop having pizza with you. You right. know, like it's it's a it's a really stretchy metaphor mm -hmm. that I think works much better in establishing the idea of sex as a collaborative act instead right. of something one person is doing to, to someone else, the yeah. other. Yeah. 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 Something that we wanted to talk about with you was porn, mm -hmm. uh, and the research is staggering. You, you state that 93% of boys by the time they're 18 have been exposed to pornography. Mm -hmm. Over half, at least in part, use pornography as education. Yeah. To supplant the sex education they're not right. getting. Because they don't get any yeah. sex education and, and the research I thought was interesting was that guys who regularly look at porn tend to be less satisfied yeah with themselves and their performance, mm -hmm. with their partner and their bo their partner's body. Yeah. Can you dig into that? Because I feel like there's polar sides of the spectrum when talks about porn, where I feel like even in the progressive space, mm -hmm. it is like benign, like it's fine, it's very liberal. Mm -hmm. And then the conservative side is shame and don't talk about it and right. you're bad. And then what's the truth? What is the research on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that, it, it's, it's a real needle to thread. And mm -hmm. so I wanna make a few things clear. First of all, I'm talking about kids. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. you're an adult. Do what you want. God bless. Right. Um, secondly, there's a lot of different kinds of porn. There's ethical porn. There's queer porn. There's feminist porn. That porn mm -hmm. tends to be behind a paywall. So what is new now um, is I mean, and, and yes, I never asked a teenage boy, you know, whether they walked, watched porn. That would have shot my credibility to hell. Uh, yeah. You know, I said <laughs> I would always say, "Is the sky blue?" Yeah. When did you first see porn? What's your relationship like to right. porn? You know, that's what, and it was one of the things they most wanted to talk about, actually, because they don't have anybody to discuss it with, and they've sure. got a lot of questions, and they're really curious about it, about, you know, what, what the research is, what it says, what, you know, their own habits. And did you, um, sorry, did you find that most of them were discovering it on their own, or were they, they sort of being kind of led into porn by someone else? If they were, if they had been exposed when they were young, like before middle school, mm -hmm. usually that meant that somebody, you know, some 
older brother or older brother's friend mm-hmm. had like, like oh, spun this out. Yeah. yeah, hey, dude, you know, yeah. or or somebody had sent them a really um, graphic, usually pretty mm-hmm. violent meme or something, self-searches started around puberty. And and that was another thing is that so the boys are, are from the get-go, masturbating with porn mm-hmm. um, and linking that um, cycle of arousal, desire, or desire, arousal, and release with porn in a way that is unprecedented. Sure. Um, so, so what happens, you know, obviously what's new is the internet, smartphones. Yeah, access and, has totally changed. And, and the fact that the paywall dropped right. um, on the sort of more um, typical um, sites. Uh-huh. And so kids then start watching that again from the get-go and with no personal, you know, experiential context of what, you know, without, you know, maybe they haven't even held hands or had a kiss uh-huh. or anything. Right. Um, so that is the kind of first imagery that they're seeing. And that sort of first-line porn tends to show sex in a distorted way mm-hmm. um, with, mm-hmm. you know, as something men do to women, to women yeah. right. with female pleasure as a performance for male satisfaction right. and a really distorted performance at that, distorted bodies, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. So um, unless, and kids are using that as sex ed, both mm-hmm. both boys and girls. Sure. Girls use it as a, a kind of instruction manual for what they think guys want. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, if we're not discussing it you know it's such a, I, I just it, I don't think we have the luxury of not talking about this with our mm-hmm. kids anymore right. we just don't um, and so unless you're getting in there and talking about what's real what's not real what's missing from porn mm-hmm. what a mutually gratifying sexual experience looks like you are literally leaving kids to their devices yeah mm-hmm. and like you say it's, it's one big social experiment and what that's going to look like yeah down the line I mean obviously we don't the jury is out what the full magnitude of what this kind of is going to be. But what do you think, what impact do you think is going to have in the long term? Well, I don't know. I do know that right now they bring those ideas into the bedroom because, of course, you know, like a lot of the guys would say, well, I know what's real and what's not real. But first of all, how? They haven't mm-hmm, had right. any experience to tell them what's real right. and what's not real. And secondly, we know that, you know, media of any kind affects your thoughts, yeah. your beliefs, your feelings. I mean, that's what it does. That's why advertising is, right. you mm-hmm. know, that's, I always liken it to fashion. Like the first time you see something, you go, well, that's hideous. And then the second time you kind of go, huh. And the third time you go, oh, I need to buy that, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course it, aff- it affects you. And, and where, where guys are concerned, seeing images of, um, female sexual submission and male entitlement over and over mm-hmm. has a spillover effect. And there's one piece of research that I was looking at that was really interesting where they had shown college kids, um, you know, one group watched, I don't know, cartoons or something, and the other group watched a reel of um, Hollywood films, Mm R-rated Hollywood films that had been edited together, um, sex scenes that showed, that were judged to be degrading to women. None of them had violence, but they had, like, female sexual submission, male sexual dominance, male sexual satisfaction, but not female sexual satisfaction, things like that. And afterwards, they had the guys read one account of stranger rape and one account of acquaintance rape. Mm -hmm. And they reacted the same, the cartoon boys and the sex real boys, to the... um, Stranger rape, mm-hmm. but where the acquaintance rape was concerned, mm. the guys who'd watched the degrading sexual scenes were 
far more likely to say the woman secretly wanted it mm-hmm. and she got what she wanted. And that held true regardless of the guy's attitudes towards gender roles mm-hmm. or towards pornography or anything. So it didn't matter if the guys were progressive mm-hmm. or um, conservative or anything. It just, there was a spillover. So it does, it has an effect. Yeah. So the, the normalization of, of, of sexually violent behavior that's being depicted kind of leads over into other areas of, of development. Yeah, and not just violence. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the kind of dynamic of male entitlement and domination and female submission. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not unique to porn either. I mean, we talk a lot about porn, but the truth is is that boys are bombarded with those images in mainstream media. Right, mm-hmm. over, right. You know, over and over and over. Yeah. And, you know, one guy said to me, I think music is one of the things that has a big influence on how guys treat girls. So he was saying, you know, when you're driving around, he was he was 18, he said, you're driving around in the car with your guys all day and you're playing music that's, you know, fuck that bitch and, mm-hmm. and quitter yeah. over, and, you know, four, five, six, ten times a day. It's going to affect your mindset. Sure, right. The other thing that I thought was very interesting in the book and in, in your research is hookup culture yeah. and alcohol mm. and the what's going on and there. And the perception of you know the number of times that people will say that they wouldn't actually have hooked up if it hadn't been for alcohol. Yeah, it was like, like 26% right? or so. Yeah. Can you expound upon that and what's going on with kids today? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, the difference between a hookup and hookup culture. Let's just mm-hmm. start with that. So okay. a hookup is just... Um, a completely ambiguous, meaningless word. Uh-huh. We have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah, what, what is it? Says, you, don't make it. Yeah, you know, I, I watched these kids at one point debate whether a dance floor makeout counted as a hookup. Uh-huh. And they were like, <laughs> it would have in high school, but it doesn't in college. Unless you do it, if you did the same behavior back in somebody's dorm room, that would be a hookup. You know? So does it, is, it, is it making out? Is it groping? Is it oral sex? Is it intercourse? You know, mm-hmm. It could be any of those things. And in college, about 30 to 40% of hookups include intercourse and maybe... 13% or so, 15%, I think it is, um, are oral sex, and the rest are kissing and groping. Mm-hmm. So not exactly the fall of Rome out there, but hookup culture is something else. Hookup culture is the expectation that sex precedes intimacy rather than being a product of intimacy, mm-hmm. so that sex is the first thing on the agenda and intimacy comes later. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is considered the kind of... Um, normalized pathway to a relationship, mm-hmm. even though most hookups don't lead to a relationship. Right. So that's the, the culture of campus life now. Uh-huh. And it is not just lubricated by alcohol, it is dependent mm-hmm. on alcohol to um, Lisa Wade, who wrote the book American Hookup, which I love, um, calls it establishing compulsory carelessness mm. that's necessary for a hookup. So the alcohol itself is what establishes the meaninglessness if you hooked up with somebody and you were sober, mm-hmm. that would mean something. Um, so it anesthetizes against feelings. Um, catching, I always, I'm such a word nerd. I love catching feelings. Catching feelings, yeah, like, it's like a, it's a disease. Don't, don't catch like, don't feelings. Catch, I know. Don't get syphilis. Don't get gonorrhea. Don't get don't feelings. Don't get feelings. Right? Yeah. Um, well, and then the one yeah. feeling that boys are in, allowed to to catch is anger. Anger, and yeah. that's about it. Anger, and as one guy said, I'm I'm allowed happiness and anger. Uh-huh. Boom. And yeah. and that's I mean that's veering off of hookup culture and not because mm-hmm. I think they're really related. Um, you know, from the get go, boys are raised in a more emotionally impoverished landscape than girls. Mm -hmm. The way parents talk to them, the way mothers talk to their infants is different with boys and girls. Um, And they are, the boys would talk to me about learning to build a wall uh-huh. Inside of them, and learning that all, and I don't know, maybe this sounds familiar to you guys. You know that mm-hmm. all, putting their all feelings, but happiness and anger, had to go behind that wall. Yeah. And they would say, "I trained myself not to feel." Right. Mm-hmm. That yeah, was a that really a common refrain, yeah. and yeah. it was just this disconnection that, as a woman talking to them, and I think this was one of the 
part of the value of being a woman doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that I just listen to that and go, what? What yeah. the heck? What yeah. are you talking about? No. That's crazy. You know, talking yeah. to a 16-year-old boy that's telling mm-hmm. you that he has to, you know, stream three Holocaust movies back to back in order to cry when his parents get right. divorced, oh, you know? Oh it's gosh. nuts. Yeah. Um, and it cuts boys off from vulnerable. Essentially, I felt like at the heart of this book is boys yeah. wrestling with vulnerability. Sure. We're, we're, we're told we can't be. We had a really interesting conversation with Jim Sexton, who was talking about one of his prou- proudest moments as a dad was when this uh, 16-year-old son came downstairs at the kitchen after having broken up with a girl. And he said, how are you feeling? He's like, I, I feel really sad. And, and he wow. was like, well, you know, that's amazing because it's really difficult for boys, particularly of that age, to understand that it's okay to feel sad. Yeah, to Usually, name it. Yeah, right. to name it, to identify yeah. it. And it usually it's anger that's, you know, it's masquerading as anger. You know, it's sadness masquerading as anger. That's so true. And one of the things I say at the end of Boys and Sex is that, especially with our little boys, mm-hmm. we have this opportunity to name feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, to say, wow, you must feel sad about that, or that must be frustrating, or give them an emotional range. Because so often, by the time boys get to be teenagers, yeah, they don't even know what those feel, they don't know what that feeling in their body is, and it just goes to anger because that's all they've got. It's the default, yeah. Yeah. And actually, back to hookup culture, one of the boys said to me, I thought this was such a great summation, um, he said, you know, sometimes it feels like he had, he was a, a second semester freshman, and he had, hooked up with 10 girls and had intercourse with five of those hookups. Mm-hmm. And he said, sometimes it can feel like two people having two completely distinct experiences. There's not a lot of eye contact. You don't mm-hmm. have a lot of conversation. And he said, it's like you're acting vulnerable, but you're not being vulnerable with the person you don't know and don't care very much about. And he said, it's <laughs> not like it's a problem necessarily, though I might argue differently, um, but it's weird and it's not very fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. It's not fun. Yeah. Because that's like you think that that's sort of It's supposed of like, to be fun. Yeah. At least it's supposed to be fun. Yeah. But, you know, I've never had a discussion with a – I mean, there's girls who embrace that kind of, you know, disconnected idea of sex, and there's boys who embrace it, and there's girls mm-hmm. who embrace, you know, connection and boys who embrace it. But in both, you know, all of those combinations, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a, with a young person about hookup culture where it hasn't turned into a conversation about – why they hate, hate hookup culture or why they're ambivalent about hookup mm-hmm. culture. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, what is the solution to that? I mean, the alcohol is, the, the, drinking the alcohol to really be a part of that whole culture. As a parent, I have a 13 year old son. I mean, he's coming of age in this space. What, what do I do? Um, well, that's why I wrote a book. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and as, you know, somebody who's a teenager, teenager myself also, yeah. um, I really think, I, I, I mean, I really did. I really wanted to write this, A, so that parents like you could huh. read it and think about it, but also not at 13 probably, but, right. you know, in another couple of years, year or two, uh, your son can read that chapter, and that can spark conversation yeah. between you or, you know, but, um, among his friends or in his head. I want uh, a boy at my daughter's high school, I don't know him, but um, he knew somebody I knew, just emailed me to see if he could interview me for their high school paper about hookup culture. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's starting that conversation Mm -hmm. about what do you want? What do you want from your sexual experience? What does that mean? How can you interrupt that script? Is that, you know, not to put in, in, uh, there's a guy at the end of the book that I talked to who, not to put too fine a point on it, but he says, you know, do you just want an orgasm or what's the quality and context of that orgasm? Do you just want your partner to be somebody you masturbate into? 
mm-hmm. or do you want something more? And most boys would say they want something more. Yeah, yeah. What age do you feel like we should start talking? I started pretty young with my son. I made it age appropriate. But what do you, th- through your research, what do you? Yeah, I mean, immediately, you know? Yeah. And and there's great, re- I have a bunch of resources on my website, maybe that, you know, which yeah. is just my name.com, okay. ignorance.com. Um, uh, for parents and for kids themselves. And there's great books that just start young um, for, for kids who are in preschool. And there's all kinds of lessons beyond the reproductive, too, mm-hmm. that you can obviously, you know, with a little child, you can teach them um, you don't hug somebody unless they say you can hug them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lesson in consent. Or if, you know, great aunt Nancy wants to kiss them and they don't want to kiss great aunt Nancy, you do not make them kiss great aunt Nancy mm-hmm. just so that you save face, you know? Yeah. That's a lesson in personal agency. That's yeah. a lesson in consent. So kind of, you know, a lot of the lessons that we, we tend to think of of sex as like separate from all the other things that we teach kids. Um, but it's really part of integrating, you know, that into what it means to be a good human being and a mm-hmm. good citizen. Yeah, totally. And I, what I thought was fascinating was this sort of polar report where we see this hookup culture going on and an alcohol-driven uh, hookup culture, but then these reports of got, kids are having less sex, yeah. not more than ever. Right. So what's that about? Um, both are true. Uh, young people are having less sex when it's defined by intercourse, mm-hmm. in part because of hookup culture, because people don't have, you know, when if you're just having sex with people that you don't know very well, you don't have that, you don't tend to do that that often. Right. It doesn't tend to, ha- to work out very often. Sure. As opposed to if you were in a relationship. Um, but uh, it's also that those studies tend to define sex specifically by, by um, heterosexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. They don't usually include oral sex. They don't usually include anal sex. Those are things that have gone up over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's partly the way that they word the questions Definition and discuss the, the yeah. mm-hmm. studies. Yeah, Got it. It's like the Bill Clinton in the 90s, right? <laughs> right. That is not sex. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's still going on today. It really is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that was actually, I, t- I talked about that kind of more in the girl, the implications of that more in girls and sex mm-hmm. um, of of the ways that when we define other behaviors as not sex, mm-hmm. it opens the door to disrespect and misconduct um, because, hey, that's not sex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, as a parent or if you're any, if you're a parent role in anybody's life, you say, yeah, these conversations can be difficult mm-hmm. to talk about sex and masculinity and femininity, but mm-hmm. we need to do it anyways. Right. Because we're seeing, I mean, the way that culture is right now, we need to start waking up. Yeah. Yeah. You just, I mean, it's time. You can't, you can't not do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't great that they didn't, that nobody did it when we were young. You right. know, that was, but in the culture that young women and particularly young men are growing up in, they're getting such a profoundly mixed message about practicing consent um, and then these sort of um, retrograde messages that they get from the media. Mm-hmm. And nobody's, you know, I, one thing I thought a lot about as you know, somebody who's written about both boys and girls and around this media piece is that we've done such a better job with girls over the years of helping them recognize what is harmful about media mm-hmm. messages, how those messages undermine their sense of self, how they reduce them to their bodies. And there's like whole, you know, organizations and there's like there's like a whole edifice of support mm-hmm. for girls around this. And boys are growing up in that same culture. Yeah. And more and worse, I think. Yeah, that's um, a great with point. their media. And nobody says, you know, hey, this is hey not guy. Good. Yeah. You know? 
let's not even this is not good, but what what is that? I mean, like I used to with my daughter when she was little, we would watch, you know, if we were watching like a Disney movie or something, I'd say, hey, look, her eyes are bigger than her wrists. Are mm-hmm. your eyes bigger than your wrist? Is your head bigger than your waist? Mm-hmm. Why do you suppose that is? And I mean, you know, like it bugged her even when she was four that I did it, but it was a way of devel- of like scaffolding mm-hmm. to have bigger conversations later. And I have to say that probably if I had a son, I wouldn't do that. Uh-huh. I would just let him absorb those ideas about, you know, what women are, what, what beauty is, what he should want, what he should strive for, yeah. what the men are, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the stats, you have these great stats of boys and sex by the numbers, but one, the one that really stuck out to me is that 93% of all boys before, are exposed to internet pornography before the age of 18. Not surprising. Um, but when you think about it in terms of, I mean, pornography has been around for a very, very long time, for time eternal. Um, and it, pornography as a vehicle for sex education probably as well. I mean, I know when I was growing up, when I was 12, 13 years old, there was always an old copy of Playboy Hustler. magazine, yeah. Hustler magazine, yeah. if we were lucky, that was, <laughs> that was passed around. And it usually was like, you know... Doesn't it, that it was, seem quaint? It's, it does. It's One of so the boys on the yeah, book said, what's that magazine? Was, was somehow yeah. he was referring to like, what's that magazine, that the, thing they used the, to have that the, had the girls on the middle page? The like, long page. Playboy, yeah. you mean? <laughs> so yeah. quaint. Like, yeah, yeah, that. And to a degree, like there was, a, there, there was, I mean, not to say that it was great, but there was certainly... Um, you know, a lot of imagination still had to go into it because yeah. you had one copy of Playboy magazine was being circulated amongst a group of a ton of teenagers. And it's not like the sort of hyper exposure that kids have now to graphic sex, to every, you know, imaginable sexual act they can and possibly. Ones and, that you can't and imagine. And ones you can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. And it normalizes a lot of this behavior that yeah. that is, um, you know, that 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 kids that kids should not be exposed to. Yeah, and that's, then that's exactly and it has right. a huge effect on their their how they develop as sexual beings. Yeah, yeah, and we don't and we don't know the extent of that effect. Yeah, um, one guy said to me that there was um, a boy on his crew team who decided not to watch porn anymore, mm-hmm. and the other guys were like, well, "What what do you do?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "I use my imagination." And they went, whoa, how does he do that? And the guy referred yeah. to him as a legend. This guy can think about his mental capacity. Yeah. Yeah. But what, you know, and another guy was describing to me sort of how, you know, I was really, we got into stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so exactly how do you masturbate to porn? Uh-huh. Like, what is that? What's like, the process? What's yeah. the process? And he's like, well, okay, so I, uh, I have all these sites, and I open, you know, like maybe 10 or 15 video clips, and then I zip back and forth, you know, I toggle back and forth mm-hmm. to the tabs, and then, you know, you've got a death grip on the penis, mm-hmm. and that's like hyper, you know, like that that's a conditioning response that's pretty uh-huh. intense. And I think one way to talk about it with boys is to distinguish um, what's arousing uh-huh. from what's pleasurable. That's uh-huh. good. You know? Yeah, well, the, the arousal thing is really interesting because it kind of taps into that idea of addiction. And porn is really good at this. And you know, it's not like, it's in, in the same way that if someone who's a cocaine user, they're like, well, one more line of cocaine will be enough. That'll be the great line. I won't, and then you, of course, go and you want the next one, you want the next one, the next thing you know, it's 10 in the morning, you've been doing cocaine all night. Right. And, um, and and I think porn has the same sort of factor. Like, well, it's, this it's one's good. It's got a compulsive quality. It can exactly. be com- a compulsion. Yes, yeah. exactly. Especially when it is so accessible. Yeah. yeah. It's not like the random magazine. It's Exactly. Yeah. And there's and, and it's it's unending. The yeah. magazine eventually, like, you can go back to the beginning and flip it over again and start from and page it's one. It's also not moving images. Yeah. Right. Right. Endless yeah. vortex. So it's, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It it's not as it. intense. And, and over time... 
um, in order to increase that intensity and get, I mean, we live in an attention economy. Sure, you the have to make to it more. It, yeah, you have to keep making it more arousing. It's and there's designed a, that way. And there's a um, mechanism, Emily Nagoski, who wrote one of my favorite books on, on sex, which is called Come As You Are, um, talks about how when something is simultaneously like offensive or, you know, like icky to you and super sexual, that that can actually turbocharge that's what why i say like what's mm-hmm. arous, arousing right. versus what's pleasurable mm. and it can and i think this is really confusing for boys who haven't had sexual experience sure it stimulates um, them in a way. it's super stimulating yeah. it's like if i tell you um uh not to think of a bear yeah you know like now all you can think about is a bear it's yeah. so embedded in the don't think about sex message yeah. is think about sex exactly and that yeah. like makes the brain turbocharged Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be really confusing to boys, and it also is important for them to understand, um, you know, erections do not necessarily mean consent. Mm-hmm. Um, erection that you, your body is responding to something. Right. It doesn't mean your heart and mind is responding to that. You can be your body can be aroused by something because something sexual exists, but that doesn't mean that you're actually turned on by that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. called genital non-concordance. That's the fancy schmancy word for that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It's interesting uh, seeing my son grow up. I have a 13-year-old son, 10-year-old daughter. It amazed me how early on his friends were had access to porn at like age seven, mm-hmm. eight, because their parents were like letting their kids on these on phones. The yeah. And the parents, are, it's just an easier way to parent bluntly. It's it's just every, all the other kids have phones, they have phones, and there's really no checks and balances on yeah. that. Well, there's the, the, the uh, yeah, the phone thing is, is it's really hard to know what's going on on phones, and I feel like, especially I mean, a lot of kids start getting smartphones in middle school now, mm-hmm. right. and that technology in the hand of a middle schooler yeah. is so developmentally inappropriate, not just, I mean, porn, yeah, but also just like the, you know, there's inevitably going to be yeah. problems with texting inappropriately and all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. um you have so you really have to keep on it with your i mean ideally you wouldn't have your middle schooler wouldn't have a smartphone right Um, for their brain standpoint their brains really are not ready Mm -hmm. to responsibly handle that technology my son's 13 and he's the only one of his friends that doesn't have a phone and yeah he's the only one we did that too yeah have you ever seen the pixar film wally where all the People are just staring at screens. That's hard where yeah. we're headed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's definitely a scary thing. But like you know, and like I said, it, we do tend to kind of focus on the porn thing. But technology and mainstream media have all these messages better than you know. Swipe apps have uh-huh. a lot of. Right. One of the things that was really interesting to me in swipe apps was looking at. Um, uh, gendered racism and sexual racism yeah, in, yes, in yeah, swipe apps. That was a really big thing. Like there is a, in the gay community for sure, mm-hmm. but also uh, among others, there's yeah. a lot of um, you know no blacks, no Asians is is a really big thing, and and sometimes you know no race queens or no we you know whatever it is Got and it. in um, their profiles in their profiles yeah Interesting. and and the you know grinder was trying to do the kinder grinder campaign to to crack down on that um but one of the guys i talked to who is asian american and i have a lot about um guys who are asian american and african american and sort of the the ways that these masculinity issues and sexuality issues are are mediated by race um mm-hmm. and obviously by sexual orientation too um and uh one of the asian guys was telling me that he had matched with a girl in a swipe app and uh, they went back and forth for a while, and then she said, you know, well, um, we could be friends, but no offense, I don't date Asian guys. Mm. And he was like, 
how is that no offense? Yeah, like, right. How is yeah. that a thing? <laughs> well, no <Yeah>. offense. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so looking at um, the ways that even people, I think, who uh, – the kids that I was looking at were the, the African-American and Asian-American guys and Latino guys were um, – in largely white environments. Mm-hmm. So they were really kind of struggling with that. And, and, the, and white masculinity is kind of this norm. And then particularly black and Asian masculinity were like flip sides of the same coin, of, uh-huh. of the same coin of looking right. at hypersexualism yeah. and asexualism yeah. and how those are projected onto those this guys. fetishism, yeah. yeah. And one of the things you talked about was that, that um, African-American boys in predominantly white schools were perceived yeah. as being super cool, which was this other form of racism. Right, but yeah. then that could also flip really fast to mm-hmm. them being... Dumb or being Being not, dumb yeah. or being predator, or being right. seen as predators, right. predatory. Yeah. Um, and they expressed so much anxiety around that. Yeah. Um, it was really, I mean, that was fascinating to me. They, re- real anxiety. I mean, like one, one guy, you know, he just sort of said, I don't, he was in college. Uh-huh. And he's like, I'm not going to go party with a bunch of drunk white kids, you know, because anything could go wrong. And if I'm yeah. the only black guy in the room, the fingers I'm the only black guy <laughs> in the <laughs> exactly. room. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this. Um, you also talked about. Um, and I think this is really interesting. That like the use of of um, kind of homophobic language uh-huh. and kids saying boys, for instance, saying uh, you know I love chocolate ice cream. Hashtag no not homo. gay. No homo or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, gay, not gay, or yeah, no, whatever yeah, yeah, it might yeah. be. Yeah, um, yeah, that was from um, uh, C.J. Pasco, who's a sociologist in Portland, did a um, or in Oregon. I don't know if she's in Portland. She's probably in Eugene. Um, did a whole. Um, uh, survey of mm-hmm. the hashtag no homo on, mm-hmm. on Twitter. And it was, and what's interesting is that guys now, what they would say to me is, you know, when they, by the time they're in college, they're less likely to use, at least to say fag. They won't say that mm-hmm. in the same way. Um, they're less, somewhat less likely to say it's so gay. You mm-hmm. know, they, they don't do that as much by the, at least the guys I talk to by the time they get to college, though in the locker room, it's still a big deal. Right. Um, but they would always say, well, I would never say that to a gay person. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like, that's okay then, as long yeah. as I wouldn't call a gay person yeah. that. Yeah. So, and they had gay friends. You know, they're like, my best friend is gay. I would sure. never do that, you know? So they weren't homophobic, per se. Uh-huh. It was that, that fag and, and that's so gay and no homo. Those kind of draw the lines of the man box, mm-hmm. right? And they're, they're used to police masculinity and to shut down any... Protest or any standing up or anything that would allow them to push back against yeah. any of that. Mm-hmm. So no homo, um, CJ said, was being used as a, <laughs> I'm doing with my fingers yeah. a hashtag um, was uh, being used as like a shield mm-hmm. that allowed them to. It wasn't just a homophobic slur. It allowed them to express normal right. human emotions, yeah. emotions yeah. right of affection yeah. and joy. So Which it was were like okay for gay boys, but not for straight yeah. boys. Yeah. So it was like. Uh, I miss you, man. Yeah. No homo. Wow. Right. It was that. That's so wild. That's the I know. Destruction of vulnerability. I know. Right. Going on. I know. I just was blown away by that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you you touched on something too in that that this whole culture of what we of locker room talk or locker room mm-hmm. banter, and um, it's it's something that like you know we've talked a lot about a lot about on the show. How do you, as an individual, when you're witnessing something that you know is unsettling or you, you disagree with, but yet 
you, it's kind of easier just sort of fade into to either. You don't want to be targeted. You don't, yeah, you don't want to be right. targeted. And the minute you stand, and that's I think that goes back to the whole idea of vulnerability. That with yeah. kids, you know, we if you are if you show vulnerability, you become a target. You become projected as being weak, and so yeah. We, yeah. We, we you know train it out of our kids. Yeah, it's really hard. And I had one guy say to me, I was talking to this guy, and he was like, he looked like the ultimate jockey boy, not mm-hmm. to stereotype, but you know, his neck went right into his <laughs> jawline and, um, and he was captain of the, of the crew team. And uh-huh. he was saying that when he was a sophomore, he and his friend tried to stand up to this other boy who was saying something, you know, something gross. I don't mm-hmm. know. And, um, and the other kids laughed at them. And so mm-hmm. the boy that I was talking with said, so I, you know, I stopped doing it. And my friend kept standing up and the more he stood up, and the more I stepped back, I saw that, you know, other guys liked him less and respected him less and mm. didn't listen to him. And he lost all his social capital. And yeah. I was sitting there with buckets of it, but I wasn't spending it. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, he, he was going to be going into the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and being part of the, you know, the team of the guys I'm serving with. But how do I make it so I don't have to choose? Mm-hmm. You know, and right. that it was, it was a really profound moment and I'm, profound. I'm not sure I have you know I'm glad you are talking about it because mm. I don't have one answer to that yeah, but I think that men talking about that among themselves is the answer to that right right and you say like yes friendship is good brotherhood is good yeah. but we as adults need to be mindful of these these insular cliques right mm-hmm. and when that becomes a smoke screen Right. right, like the sports teams, sports can be obviously can be great. They're fun. Mm-hmm. They, you know, build brotherhood. They build camaraderie. They build teamwork. They build character, and that culture that can be a smokescreen for the worst kind of bro culture. And right. I had a mm-hmm. lot of guys. I was really struck. I don't know if this was your experience growing up, but I was struck by how many guys um, had dropped out of sports that they enjoyed. Not because they didn't like the sport, but because they didn't like the culture. No, I did. I mean, I I, I was um, uh, a lacrosse player in high school, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a very good lacrosse player. And I went and looked at Division One schools, and, and the main reason that I didn't end up pursuing, I never played lacrosse again after high school, was because I went to, to visit these schools and stayed in fraternities that were lacrosse fraternities, and I was appalled by the behavior, and these guys were just fucking idiots. Yeah. And I was, you know, I wasn't going to be... I wasn't going to go to a school where like the you know everyone's jerking on a cook, jerking off on a cookie and the freshman right. had to eat it in front of everyone else. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that was happening and and normalized. Yeah. Yeah. And so that I mean like what does that mean? I mean there was something that you loved doing that you were really good at that it's stripped away from and you and it's because taken of, yeah. away from you. Yeah. yeah. And that it was really and one of the guys that I talked about also a lacrosse player mm-hmm. um, had not only quit his team but because he was at a small school and it was a really like lefty school too. Mm-hmm. He transferred Really? Because the school was so small, he felt like he couldn't, you know, couldn't socially make wow. the transition and never played sports again. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, can we talk about sex education again? Is you've, I heard you talk about the way that sex education is done. I believe it's in Denmark. Uh, Holland. Holland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same oh, thing. Same. Right. same. I mean, same. it's the same. Everybody in Denmark. Yeah. <laughs> but can you tell me kind of... Yeah, it's really... What, but I, can I can I just make sure. one more point of about course. what yeah. you were just saying about sports? I also, though, have seen that those cult- all-male cultures can be leveraged to, to work to, on yeah. these issues. So I, I don't want I didn't want to leave it there. Um, well, that's th- where, like, the role of coaches is so exactly. important. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say there's, like, the program Coaching Boys into Men, yeah. you know, is a fantastic program and it used I mean you know unfortunately sometimes coaches are part of the problem but 
when they take it upon themselves to be part of the solution and to change the culture of the locker room and the sports mm -hmm. teams, they can turn it into an experience where it is character building for boys yeah. and builds those better men. So, you know, I don't want to just write off no. those yeah. environments. There's, um, I, I, you seen, I'm sure you've seen the, the film, The Mask You Live In. Yeah. And, um, that there's a coach in that who's in Baltimore and he's just remarkable. This guy's amazing. And he's like, everything he's trying to do is change the culture of just even from the language, language that we yeah. use in, in sports where we talk about, you know, don't play like a girl, don't fight don't like be a, a pussy. girl, don't be a pussy, mm -hmm. all of these things that engender, you know, the, the idea of, of success or failure. Yep. Um, so I think it, it really, it's a great point and, and one that, that, um, Coaches have a huge responsibility. And when I, I think back and I look at the coaches that I had, I had some great coaches. I also had some coaches that were awful. They were like really just played into and fed the the, the, the problem. So it's, again, you know, I think adult men, you know, and you don't have to be perfect, right? You can you can be right. a flawed guy yeah. and still have Start something to, to say and, and do something. So you were asking about um, sex ed yeah. in Holland, where they start, you know, like eight, age four. Mm -hmm. And so there was the, I, I got interested because I saw this study. It was with girls, but mm -hmm. it was looking at um, college aged women and their early sexual experiences and and comparing two demographically similar groups in Holland and the United States. And they found that you know. The Dutch girls basically had everything we say we want, right? They had fewer pregnancies, lower rates of disease. They also were more likely to be sober. They were more likely to say that they enjoyed the first time, that they, mm -hmm. they it was with somebody that they knew very well, who they could communicate with. I mean, like, everything you want. Sure. And so when they dug deeper with the kids, what they found was that they said that their parents, teachers, and doctors had talked to them from a very young age mm -hmm. about sex, pleasure, and emotional intimacy. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me as a parent myself because I think, you know, we American parents tend, when we talk to our kids about sex, to focus on it's risk fear. and danger. It's fear. Yeah. yeah. It's fear-based. Yeah. And, and taboo. I would have, I'm sure, and, you know, it, what, what this encourages is to shift that to be talking about responsibility and mm -hmm. joy. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I know that if I was, had not thought about all this, I would have talked to my own child about, you know, contraception, disease protection. Sure. Yeah. And because I'm very modern, I would have talked to her about consent. Yeah. And mm. I would have thought, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> yeah. Job well done. So it's interesting because I, I, I lived in Spain for a long time mm -hmm. and I spent my senior year in high school in Spain. Um, and when all of my friends in the States were getting wasted when they were seniors in high school, in Spain they were drinking alcohol, but it wasn't to the same degree. And a big part of it was because alcohol was not this thing that was kept from them. Yeah. So in the same way that like discussing sexuality, having the, in the, sort of in the Nordic countries were a little bit more open-minded, right. alcohol being the other piece of that, like, you know, n normalizing it, mm -hmm. having you know, I lived with the host family. We had wine. I drank wine at age 16 with the family that I lived with because it was yeah. what you did. Um, there wasn't anything, it wasn't like something that was kept from me. And so it wasn't something that I wanted to have, you know, yeah. in, in the same way that I think I would have otherwise. It's just it, yeah. normalizing. I think it's really important. You're not the first. Uh, I actually had, uh, I did a long interview with a guy who had spent a senior year in Spain and, uh -huh. and said the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely true. And it also gives parents, you know, I talk about the sleepover, having, mm -hmm. you know, if, you're, if your child has a significant other that is a real, you know, solid relationship, to have that conversation with them. Because I don't know, it's, we... First of all, it's a way that you can keep a kind of soft control on your child and mm -hmm. you can reiterate those values again. Um, but also, as American parents, we just kind of like, we force our kids to grow up by lying to us. Mm -hmm. Right. You know? Yeah, and hiding behavior. Yeah. 
Um, as opposed to having it be something that's discussed in the family yeah. and, you know, hashed out and values established. And yet, and, you know, they're also living in this bifurcated culture that's at once, you know, they're seeing all of it's so saturated with mm-hmm. a kind of commodified transactional se- sexuality. And then we don't talk to them at all. Yeah, right. We pretend we pretend it doesn't, we pretend exist. It doesn't yeah. exist. And in right. and, and the other thing, there's this word in Dutch that I can't say, so I apologize in advance <laughs> if anybody's Dutch, but it's like gezelligheid or something. It means cozy togetherness. Uh-huh. And it presumes that kids grow up instead of fr- by breaking and lying to their parents, by discussing things. It's called cozy togetherness, and it means like you're discussing everything within the family. Uh-huh. So again, parents tend to use that as a way to like maintain this soft control of their right. children so that they can help guide them right. towards making choices that are healthy and better for them. Wow, that was a, that was a great conversation. That was a really, really, I really thoroughly enjoyed that episode. Me too. It was really enlightening for me on so many levels. Like we, I know it's, I'm looking at my son and his friends and mm-hmm. all his friends have phones and I, I see what's going on. The parents, I don't know, their head's in the sand in mm-hmm. many ways. They don't want to face what's going on. And it's so easy to just go with what culture is saying to do. I, To me, it just, in many ways did two things. It one solidified some parental decisions that I have made that uh-huh. he doesn't have a phone yeah. and I'm having open conversations with him from a young age and I'm still having it. Mm-hmm. But it also made me want to be better and continue to talk about it more. Um, and what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was, it was, I mean, there's, there's so many great takeaways from this. The, the number of boys that she's spoken with and the research that she's found in speaking with these boys, I mean, it's, it's remarkable how prevalent alcohol is and how that leads to, to hook up and right. without, without alcohol, how many kids said they wouldn't have hooked up. This idea of hookup culture and what that means, uh, a lot of the, the, the language around sexuality that we use, mm-hmm. um, and how many boys are kind of, it seemed, and I felt this in reading the book too, time and time again, boys that kind of are caught in this culture that's very misogynistic and it is mm-hmm. very, very almost sexually violent, but don't really want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the, that's the default, that's the norm, and so they kind of get stuck into it, and it's easier for them to go go along with it than to speak out, because when they do speak out or they try to step away from it, they're ostracized. Totally. So you can learn more about Peggy and her work and her books at PeggyOrenstein.com. That's P-E-G-G-Y-O-R-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. And definitely grab a copy of her new book, Boys and Sex, out now. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, guys, now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Jack asks, what do you make when you only have 10 minutes? Seamus, what say you? I'm making the love. <laughs> no, uh, let's see. What do I make when I only have 10 minutes? I'm assuming this is like what I make to eat. Yes, I'm assuming uh, Jack Yeah, <laughs> that's that. what Jack means. Not love. Yeah. Um, well, here, I'm going to give you a little secret, Jack. Um, <laughs> the six and a half minute egg. 
the perfect egg. And this is the way to make the perfect egg. First, you need to start with really good quality eggs. So good, pastured, free-range, organic eggs. They're gluten-free and laid by a chicken named Nancy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> free roaming exactly. in the fields yeah. of Vermont. Uh, exactly. Uh, so you take good quality eggs. Ideally, you bring them up to room temperature, but you know, you're not, probably not going to do that. Get a pot of water boiling. This is very important. Ample water boiling. Once it comes to a boil, you reduce it to what my mother always called fish eyes. Hmm. So just a, a, a very light boil. And then very carefully lower the eggs using a spoon into the water. It's important that you do this carefully because, and it's important also that it's not boiling too hard because if it's boiling too hard, they'll bounce off the bottom of the pan hmm. and break. And if you don't do it gently with the spoon, they'll also crack in the bottom of the pan. So lower into the, into the water. Meanwhile, as you're doing that with, if you're right-handed, as you're doing that with your right hand, with your left hand, you have your timer on your fancy phone set up or mm-hmm. not an egg timer because they don't come in six and a half minute increments. <laughs> but set, set your timer to six and a half minutes. And that's six and a half minutes for a medium egg. If it is a large egg, then you want seven minutes. If it's a pullet egg or a small egg, six minutes is plenty. While that is simmering for the specified amount of time, get a bowl of ice, ample ice, Mm -mm. and then add water to it. The specific ratio is one-to-one, water to ice. And so get your bowl of ice water. When the the, um, timer goes off, take the eggs out of the um, hot water into the ice water, let them cool down, and then peel them, and you get a perfect jammy yolk. And wow. that is like the way to get a nice set white and a perfect jammy yolk. And I, I love to cook these and keep them in the fridge so that I have them as a snack or I can add it into a salad really easily. Yeah. Um, if I have some leftovers, I can just add, add an egg to some leftover roasted vegetables and you have something I love that. along with it. But it's like a, a perfect thing. So I guess that's not a 10, 10 minutes, that's seven minutes. So I've got three extra minutes. <laughs> what am I going to do with those three extra minutes? Love. Uh, obviously, yeah. Yeah, that's plenty of time to make love. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't need three minutes. Um, no. Uh, and then take scoop out some avocado, slice it up, drizzle some olive oil, yeah. sea salt, some, some, Good stuff. some sesame seeds, and then put your egg with it. That's ketotarian, man. Ketotarian right there. Uh, I can't beat that. I'm not a chef. I was just going to say almond butter. Well, but. there you go. <laughs> then if it takes you 10 minutes to get almond butter out of the jar, then we need to have a cooking class, you yes, and I. Seriously. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.